Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the gift of coming together as a church family. God, we ask in these next few minutes as we just do our normal church thing, we ask that you would draw to our minds the different men that you've put in our life throughout the course of our life who've shown us deeper pictures of who you are. God, we want to celebrate you as our good father today. And we know that you reveal yourself through your word and you reveal yourself through your church here on earth. And so we thank you for that gift today. We celebrate your goodness toward us, God. You're really good and we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Alrighty, we're in Acts 13. And what we're doing is we, we jumped into Acts 13 last week and hit this transition point into the second part of Acts. We've moved our focus primarily from the church in Jerusalem and the original work that happened as the church was birthed, kind of represented through the ministry of the Apostle Peter and extensions of that. And now we're going to start focusing on the larger work of the church in the global mission by focusing in on the ministry of the church at Antioch as expressed through their uh, commissioned missionary, the Apostle Paul, and his extended ministry. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts 13 through 28 following Paul on his various missionary journeys. There'll be a couple times where we have a, a little pause and we head back to Jerusalem and we see how the, the global church is interconnected in those things. But the main thrust of the narrative from this point out is going to be the Apostle Paul and his ministry uh, as sent by the church at Antioch. So we've moved from the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem to the predominantly Gentile church in Antioch. And we're going to see some of these really cool shifts. We're going to dive into uh, the, the narrative, and it's a big narrative, but the first piece of one of the largest missionary undertakings in the entirety of church history and one of the first missionary undertakings in church history. Now, Jesus was very adamant, right, that his followers should invite more people into being part of the family of God. I, th I think we all agree on that. And we see that the early church took that call from Jesus very seriously. The early church faithfully proclaimed the gospel message of Jesus everywhere they went. What we're talking about and what we're going to begin to see now is not so much, and this is a subtle difference, but I think it's an important one, not so much the church taking the gospel with them when they go places, but the church going places for the purpose of taking the gospel with them. And, and there is a difference there. We're going to be talking about specific missionary undertakings. And we'll talk about how this has kind of worked out a little differently. We'll see this from the beginning of Acts 11 and the birth of the church at Antioch to these new missionary movements. But here, here's the reason I make this distinction for us. This missionary movement that was birthed by the early church as, that we're reading about in our history as God's people right now, that missionary movement has continued unbroken for 2,000 years. And it is alive and well right now. It's happening right now, guys. In fact, the IMB just commissioned the International Mission Board, who we support, the Southern Baptist Convention. They just commissioned over 65 new missionaries to the international mission field like two weeks ago. You know, th this work is still happening. You know, we have young college-age students in our church who are right now getting training for international mission work. One of them is on the field right now. This is, and you're like, I know who that is. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say. It's another one of those DL things, but you, if you know, you know. What we're going to be talking about today and discussing is the same mission. 
The same mission these missionaries were just commissioned to, the same mission these two young people are pursuing an obedient call to and getting trained for. And, by the way, the same mission that you and I are going to participate in when we walk out of this space and walk into our life and interact with our family and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our kids and our grandkids and all of the above. Same mission, unbroken for 2,000 years. That mission is the amazing truth that God, our God, will make straight the paths of those who seek after him. I want you to hear that phrase. We worship, we are calling people to the God who makes straight paths for those who seek him. You see, our God is moving in power in this world to overcome the resistance that exists in human hearts. He does this through the power of the Holy Spirit in our world and the power of the word of God proclaimed. I want you to hear those two pieces. He he is moving his kingdom forward, advancing his kingdom, drawing the dead to life, drawing more and more into his family through the power of his spirit on display in this world and the power of his word proclaimed. And we're going to see that on full display in our text today. So, Acts chapter 13, I've given it more than enough introduction. Let's read it. We're going to start in verse 4, and it says this. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salmis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher today. Illuminate the text to us. Make your will, your heart known to us in the way that we actually need today. God, I pray that you would would be the one who convicts, you would be the one who teaches, you would be the one who calls, and that we would be humble and quiet and open and receptive to hear from you in the way we actually need today. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to accomplish. I'd like for us to walk back through this story and essentially just take in as much of it as we can. I I think there's something about this chunk of the narratives in Acts where we're getting into these early church history missionary narratives that that, that they're they're just energizing. When you see the way God was moving in power to to bring about his kingdom and to draw the dead to life, there's something about it that really does just, you just kind of sit there and go like, that's us, like that's our history. 
And I want us to, as much as we can today, just stew in that truth. I'll work us through some of the historical notes in this. There's a couple cultural contextual pieces that I think will really help clarify this text. And hopefully, I'll be able to help us kind of sync it up to some of the geography of it to really see Paul's ministry in light of the larger teaching of Acts and the larger teaching of Scripture. I believe what we'll mainly see today is this, the way that God goes before us to do the main work of advancing his kingdom. We'll talk about the reality of the supernatural power of God's kingdom, and we'll talk about the effectiveness of God's word supernaturally proclaimed in kingdom work. And then, honestly, we'll just end our time by reflecting and singing and praying together and shaking communion like we always do. Sound good? Rock and roll. So we're getting into these missions narratives, and we're going to be in this for a long while. So I hope you like these, right? But, but really, we're, just, we're revisiting these stories of how God built up his church. At this point in the narrative, however, we're, we're starting to get to the point where geography begins to matter. And here's what I mean by this. Some of you are going, ugh. I say geography matters purely because Luke, in writing this, assumes that you understand the ancient Roman world, right? And most of us, that's not our hobby. We, we're not super up-to-date on ancient cities and civilizations, right? And so it can just make the story a bit confusing when we start to read these variety of names and cities and places, and we just aren't 100% sure what he's talking about. So I would encourage you guys to acquaint yourselves with a Bible map. If you have uh, you know, a decent study Bible or something, it probably has maps in the back. Uh, there's usually four or five maps one of them will say Paul's missionary journey or first missionary journey. You can find that. I have a couple that I'll put here on the screen for us, I think. Oh, I won't put on the screen for us. But uh, we'll, we'll have them going forward to kind of remind us of this. But it really is just to kind of help us wrap our heads around what we're actually talking about here. So if you have a Bible app, I'd encourage you to acquaint yourself with it. You can grab your phone and Google it right now if you want to. But, but I'll do this for you. This, this is going to be great. If you imagine kind of the Mediterranean Sea, and I've got it facing you guys right now, right? This is the, the eastern coast of it, right? If you imagine the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine, the place where Jesus lived his entire life and worked his ministry, is right down here. It's close to where the Mediterranean, where Syria hits Egypt, down in kind of that bottom southeastern coastal piece of the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch, which is becoming the new kind of focus of the church ministry, is up here in the corner of the east coast or the eastern beach of the Mediterranean Sea. And our story today takes place on the island of Cyprus, which is right here. It's one of the biggest islands in the Mediterranean, and it's actually pretty important. You see, this local church in Antioch was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and they set aside Paul and Barnabas to this specific ministry of, of taking like a mission work, right? And Cyprus is their first stop. Now, it actually mentions another city here where they stop, whatever that is, Sal Salamis, Salmonius, whatever it is. That's, that's not really the first stop because this city is so close to Antioch, it kind of served as the main port for Antioch. So they head down to that city and they take off and they land in Salmis, which is on the far eastern coast 
of the island of Cyprus. It's the original capital of Cyprus, but now under the Roman Empire, it's just a major city on this island. And then, well, here's what, what, what they essentially do over the course of their whole time on this island. They travel from city to city to city, working from the east coast over towards the west coast, preaching the gospel. But there's something really specific they do here. You see, Cyprus is not only already deeply Jewish in culture, it has a a pretty strong Jewish presence, Cyprus has actually already heard the gospel. They've actually already heard about Jesus. I don't know if you guys recall this, but back in Acts 11, when we're first introduced to the church at Antioch, we're told that when the great persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, the Christians scatter and take the gospel with them, right? And it says that one of the places they land is the island of Cyprus. And we know also, by the way, that Barnabas, who's been sent on this work alongside Paul, grew up in Cyprus. He knows this community well. And so making Cyprus their first stop is really strategic. And and the reason is this. They're hoping it's going to be the kind of low-hanging fruit of conversion. (laughs) Here's what they're hoping. They're hoping they'll be able to come through and preach the gospel in these synagogues amongst people, some of whom have already heard the gospel, and that they'll be able to help plant and root and establish a really strong church in Cyprus. And the reason makes total sense. Antioch is landlocked. But Cyprus is one of the major port stations for the whole of the Roman Empire. It is a perfect staging place for missionary work throughout the entire empire. And so these guys show up, Paul and Barnabas, with their buddy John Mark, hoping to just see the church blow up really fast, really quick, and really strong in Cyprus so they have a good kind of home base to come back to rather than have to travel inland again to get back to Antioch. I love that because that's one of those sorts of plans that just makes sense. It's the sort of thing where if you sat down to strategize it, you'd be like, yeah, that's that's pretty smart, that makes sense, that's reasonable. And yet God just blows that thing out of the water entirely. They make their way across Cyprus, and it basically doesn't tell us anything about how successful or not successful they are. They're just traveling, starting in Patha, or starting in Salmis on the east coast of the island, traveling across to the west coast, preaching the gospel. And we don't really get any narrative until they get to the city of Paphos. Now, Paphos, and this is where I'm going to get a little nerdy on you guys for a couple minutes, but I think this is important. I think this helps us clarify it. Paphos is the Roman capital of Cyprus. And so that's important for us for a couple reasons. The big one is Cyprus is a full member of the Roman Empire. It is not an imperialized state. It is a senatorial state. What that means is they don't have a governor. They don't have a pilot. Pilate was a Roman governor who was a trained military man who was there with tons and tons and tons of Roman guards and soldiers around him to enforce his will because he was in a place that was conquered by the Roman Empire. These were subjects. When you read about Jesus' life and ministry in that time in Palestine, Rome was pretty brutal to Palestine because Palestinians were second-class citizens. They were conquered peoples. They existed to, to the glory of Rome. Cyprus is way different. Cyprus is fully inducted 
into the Roman life and the Roman lifestyle. They have a proconsul, not a governor, not a military leader, someone who would have been incredibly intellectual and trained in social planning and philosophy. It's a very peaceful place. Way less soldiers in Cyprus than in Palestine. We're talking about a place that had senatorial seats for the Roman government. This is a place that is, is deep into secular Roman society, right? And in this context, Paul and Barney sweeping across Cyprus, preaching the gospel. That sounds like a folk song. I feel like we could make that somewhere. Sweeping across Cyprus, preaching the gospel. At some point, this Roman proconsul, one of arguably the most powerful political men in the known world at that time, right? Residing over an actual like chunk of the empire, hears about these guys and wants to hear what they have to say. Now, it's easy for us to breeze past that, but, but, but I, it's important for us to actually sit on that for a minute. There is no good reason for this guy to even hear about these dudes. These are just two guys traveling across the island preaching. Guys, there's a lot of people that live in Cyprus. Paphos and Salmas, these are big cities, and these are just the two biggest cities on this island. This is an old culture that's well-established with a lot of people living there, two random guys traveling from Jewish synagogue to Jewish synagogue, preaching a message, shouldn't really be news on the level of the proconsul hearing about it. But there's something about the gospel message, and there's something about the plan of God that actually it makes its way to him. And honestly, we don't know how he learned about it, but it's not that strange that he would be curious about it. And here's the reason why. This guy, again, he's not a pilot. He's not a military leader there to keep these people down. He's a proconsul. He's part of Roman society. He would have been incredibly educated. And Roman society was deeply religious. Not in the way that we use the term. And this is where I got to get a little nerdy with you guys. You see, Rome, the Roman Empire at this point in time, was very proudly and very purposefully synchronistic in their understanding of spirituality. They believed that there was such a thing as truth, that there was literally like a spiritual realm, but they also believed that because of this massive empire, the super diverse culture that represented Rome, that basically everyone probably had a, probably an equal stake on what was actually true about the spiritual realm. The Roman Empire looked, or the, the Roman kind of sensibility around spirituality was this. There's obviously a spiritual realm. There's obviously gods. Everyone believes in them, and everyone believes different stuff about them, so they're probably all at least partially right. And they were proud of this. As the Roman Empire expanded, they were proud of their ability to root through philosophical ideas and theological ideas and grab a hold of the ones that they felt like made sense and felt like synced up with their view of the world, which was that Rome is great and glory to the empire. And as long as your theological or philosophical idea didn't really mess with that, it was great. And they would just incorporate it in to the big stew pot that was Roman spirituality. And this, by the way, Paphos, this city, is actually at the center of one of the most famous examples of this in Roman history. You see, Paphos is the traditional birthplace of the goddess Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of beauty. 
And the original oldest temple to Aphrodite still exists on the site of Paphos. And so here's the catch to that, though. That was pre-Rome. That was in the Greek days, right? When Rome comes on the scene and they're conquering the whole world and they conquer the Greeks and they get to the whole Aphrodite thing, they're like, hey, we dig this. It's pretty good. Goddess of beauty, goddess of fertility. That makes sense. You know, we've already got Venus. She's kind of a vague goddess of fertility and like farming and stuff. That kind of makes sense. And we already conquered Alexandria and they've got Isis and she's a goddess of like erotic love and also fertility. And that kind of makes sense. And, you know, and we conquered Palestine and they've got Ishtar and she's a goddess of fertility. You know what? They're all just Aphrodite now. It's all just Aphrodite now. That's, and then we're just, that's our thing. And that's literally how they did it. And they built temples to Aphrodite and other major cities in the Roman Empire. In fact, later on in Acts, one of the most beautiful sermons delivered in the whole of the story of Acts is going to be when Paul visits Corinth and preaches the gospel a couple miles away from the big temple of Aphrodite that existed in that city that employed thousands of temple prostitutes. Now, by the way, real just quick note, the Aphrodite temple in Paphos, way different than the Corinth Aphrodite temple. Way less uh, temple prostitution going on uh, on, on uh, Cyprus. They actually still kind of held to the older view that Aphrodite was really a goddess of beauty. And so the worship of Aphrodite on the island of Paphos was actually kind of stoic. It was very philosophical and very reflective and very just kind of what is beautiful in the world. Uh, a, little, a little less eroticism uh, built into it like it was in the other Aphrodite temples throughout the Roman Empire. Now, here's the reason I say all that. I know that's just a little bit down the road of just some historic history and context and stuff. This is why this is important. You're talking about a guy who's very well educated. To be in the position he's in, he would have the equivalent of at least a couple PhDs by our standard. Probably something in general philosophy and something in civic management or those sorts of things. And this guy is a Roman's Roman. He looks at the world and he believes in the spiritual realm. And he believes that any new teaching, any new thing can't be bad. There's got to be something good in it. So somehow he hears about these two guys preaching and he wants in on it. He wants to hear about what's actually going on. So he calls these guys to him. He wants to dig through this and figure out if there's anything worth snagging in this new teaching called the way. Now, I love this. I love this because there's no way on earth Paul and Barney could have planned out this scene. <laughs> this is not the sort of scene that would have ended up on their vision board as they were thinking through what would happen in Cyprus, right? Okay, we'll travel across the island. When we get to Paphos, we'll set up a private audience with the proconsul, and we'll preach the gospel to him, right? There's just no way no way. But this is the scene they find themselves in. Private audience with the proconsul. And then we meet this guy, Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus literally means son of Joshua or son of Jesus, uh, which isn't a reference to the Jesus we know. It's just really ironic, literally, <laughs> that the false prophet, demonic-empowered magician claims to be a son of Jesus and is very obviously not. But we're told this guy is a Jewish magician who is sort of in kind of the orbit or the entourage of the proconsul. Now, this guy is interesting in his own right. The main thing is, 
he's Jewish, but in this context, that really means he's culturally Jewish. This is not a guy who would be welcome in the synagogue because he practices divination and magic, which are very specifically prohibited within Judaism. This idea of kind of the folk magician was actually really common in the Roman world. Again, going back to kind of their weird understanding of spirituality, most of these Roman governors and proconsul types would just sync up and find a couple local magicians or diviners or whatever they call themselves in that context to be on their team. And these guys would be called upon to help with medical needs. They'd be called upon to do demonic deliverance ministry and exorcisms. And they would be called on to practice divination and help predict the future and give these guys a wisdom of how to make good decisions. And you can read about them. They're pretty well-known in Roman history. And here's the piece that I think is actually really important for us reading this text. Because if you're like me, and by that I just mean a modern Westerner, you read this story and your immediate gut assumption is, well, this guy's just some kind of fraud. Like, he's some kind of shyster. He's ripping off the proconsul and, you know, getting paid for it. That's not a thing. (laughs) You can't just go out and be a magician and do magic. That's not really a thing. According to this story, it's a thing. And if you actually read about these these Roman governors and proconsuls, actually wrote about these guys relatively often, and it seems as though they were tapping into what at least appeared to be some kind of supernatural power in doing some of this stuff. And the story definitely plays it that way. Look what this guy is called. He's called a magician and a false prophet. Now that title would immediately tell us that in some way, this guy Bar-Jesus is tapping into either Jewish language or Jewish belief or Jewish scripture in how he is practicing his divination. He He is tapping into some of that stuff and he has gained this mantle of false prophet. But there's something about this scene and, and, and by the way, the, the, the author here, like, he just assumes that we all with him believe and assume that there is such a thing as evil magicians in the world who do evil things supernaturally. That's a weird kind of just claim for us, but we have to remember, because the Bible is unapologetically supernaturalistic, believes in these things. So here we've got this guy, Bar-Jesus, who is in the court of the proconsul. He's the evil, you know, imagine, I guess, the bad guy from Harry Potter, right? Just something stereotypically evil, I guess, as he does his magic for this guy. But here's what's so interesting about his specific character. And this is, I think, what taps us into a little bit of what's actually going on here. The text says he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, we could talk about how this is strategic, right? Maybe he had some realization and thought, oh, if this guy converts to actually to the way, then he probably won't want to pay me to be his magician anymore. But that's pretty unlikely. The reality is this governor wanted to hear about this because he probably wanted to hear about every traveling teacher and philosopher that came through Paphos that he knew about. No, no, there's something else going on here. We're talking about a man who essentially has been consulting demons as a profession to divine truths for his employer. And here he is sitting in a room hearing the gospel of freedom in Jesus proclaimed to a heart that is lost and dead in its transgressions and in need of salvation. Guys, this is purely and simply spiritual warfare. Again, 
The Bible is a supernaturalistic book. And it believes very much that there are spiritual realities and beings that do not desire the kingdom to go forward. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And guys, Paul steps up brilliantly in this moment. And by the way, this is a really quick side note. You'll notice that right in this section, all of a sudden it switches from calling him Saul to calling him Paul. That switch is pretty much going to be permanent for the rest of the book. And I know that sounds, it's, it's just not as big a deal as it sounds when you actually read it. The actual thing going on here is that uh, Saul was a dual culture person. He was a Jewish by birth and by practice, but he was also a Roman citizen by birth. And so he would have had two names, his Jewish name and his Gentile name. And Paul is just essentially the Roman or Greek pronunciation of his Jewish name, Saul. And so when he was in predominantly Jewish contexts, he would go by his Jewish name, Saul. And when he was in predominantly Gentile contexts, he would go by his Gentile name, Paul. And the transition here is made intentionally to show us Paul is giving himself over to a call and a ministry to the Gentiles. And he's going to go by Paul pretty much for the rest of his life because he's pretty much going to live the rest of his life in Gentile spaces, ministering to Gentiles. But anyway, Paul steps up brilliantly in this moment of demonic spiritual warfare against the advancement of the kingdom. The text says the Holy Spirit empowers Paul who looks bar Jesus in the eyes and stares him down. Now the English doesn't really do this justice. It doesn't give weight to this, but this phrase we read as intently, he looked on him intently. What this is really supposed to show us is that the Holy Spirit is giving Paul eyes to really see bar Jesus for what he is. Like Elijah standing up to the prophets of Baal, if Bar-Jesus is the false prophet who is representing the interests of demonic forces, then the Holy Spirit of God anoints Paul who steps into the role of the true prophet of God. And in this moment, he prophesies against this magician and then speaks judgment over him, which is immediately just carried out by the Spirit. If this is reminiscent for you guys of Peter and the Samaritan magician earlier on, it should be. The similarity here is purposeful. Luke wants us to know that the same spirit who empowered and spoke judgment to the apostle Peter and empowered the ministry of the church in Jerusalem is speaking to the apostle Paul and empowering the ministry of the church in Antioch. This is the same movement, the same church, the same God. And as is always the case, Demonic power plays only to serve to advance the cause of the kingdom. I love this. Demonic power cannot overcome the power of the true God. It is subservient to him who is the creator, who is ultimate. And immediately in this moment, Bar-Jesus is struck blind. And all of a sudden, everyone in the room sees him physically as he is spiritually. This man who claimed to have power, who claimed to see things, who claimed to bring wisdom to the proconsul, now wanders about seeking for someone to lead him by the hand. And look how this narrative ends. I love this. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I love this ending. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. I love this because, because of this. Guys, because of the work of Christ, you and I, we will get to engage Sergius Paulus, our brother in the faith, in eternity. 
we will get to celebrate and worship Jesus with this brother in eternity. He is a part of the kingdom. He is our brother in the faith. Some random Gentile Roman official who through the power of God found life and salvation through the preaching of the word and the power of the spirit. Because the kingdom of God advances through the power and through the word. We see this. These three guys, Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark, they choose to be obedient. They choose to follow God in faith. And because of that, we'll get to hang out with Sergius Paulus in eternity. How cool is that? And here's the beautiful thing, guys. And this is kind of how we'll bring this together. The, the power of God and the word of God, they're always together. They are inseparable. Beloved, we, we often forget this in the busyness of our modern experience of faith, but the gospel of Jesus is a supernatural worldview. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God speaks into this world and entered into this world and affects this world. It's not simply a philosophy. It's not simply an intellectual exercise. We believe in the reality of the spiritual realm that impacts our world. And just like this guy, Bar-Jesus, was tapped into some sort of evil spiritual reality, we believe that the Holy Spirit of God is, interacts with us. He anoints believers. He opens hearts. He makes his word proclaimed to strike home so the dead hearts in need of him can come alive in him. So the kingdom of God advances when human hearts are set free from sin and death. But it's always these two things that are present. The power of God and the word of God. They will always both be there. I need you to hear this. They'll always both be there. Power by itself, like I've never had that experience of someone being like, and like sparks come out or whatever. But power by itself can't exist. We just saw it. See, reference bar Jesus. But power by itself, apart from the Holy Spirit, it may do stuff, but it's not going to do anything you want to do. It's not anything you want to be connected to. We want the power of our God. But here's the other piece to this. The Word by itself, apart from the power of the Spirit, and this one might be a little harder for us to swallow, is just as dangerous as power by itself apart from the presence of God. I know what you're saying, or what you're thinking is, but this is God's word. How can that be? Beloved, Satan himself wielded the word of God to try and attack and tempt Jesus. The scripture says that the scripture is a sword, that it cuts and pierces and divides. And here's the thing about weapons, guys. They can be used for noble and important purposes, and they can also be used for terrible things. If Satan himself can wield the word of God to try and wound and tempt Jesus. And we got to sit back and go, this, this sword, apart from the spirit of God, can be dangerous. I sat once in a counseling session with a married couple where there was physical abuse going on. And the wife was seeking to end the restraining order because her violent abuser husband had used the word of God wrongfully to convince her that she was in sin. She was in sin. Because this weapon can be distorted, which is why we always, it's why it's such a big deal that you don't just put anyone in the pulpit. 
that you be careful about who you entrust this task to. It's a big deal. That's why we always seek, we always look for the power of God and the Word of God together. The kingdom of God will always have the Word of God, and the kingdom of God will always have the power of God. We must see both of these in our midst, and we must seek both of these in our midst. I'm going to end with this idea. All this, all this thing we're looking at here, it brings us back to the ultimate truth of this text, and I think the challenge for us today, and that's this. We worship a God who is about the work of advancing his kingdom. That is the ultimate story of this text, is that God is the one who is advancing his kingdom. I mean, think about it. God is the one who anointed and set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work. God is the one who sent them to Cyprus, where he had already sent other believers to preach the word. God is the one who set it up so that the Roman proconsul would want to hear from them. And when they get there to this insane scenario that they couldn't have planned or set up on their own, in that context, they meet an evil, dark magician opposing them with demonic power. (laughs) And what happens? The Spirit of God shows up and puts that cat in his place. And then the Spirit of God uses his word to cut and convict and draw a dead soul to life. What did Paul and Barnabas and John do in this scenario? What they did is they just said, yes, Lord, and took a step. They heard from the Spirit and they said, yes, Lord, and they took a step. And they heard from the Spirit and said, yes, Lord, and took another step. And they continued doing that. And here's what's amazing. Our God went before them, our God went with them, and our God came after them. And he did the work. And beloved, That is true for us today. That has not stopped being true. Our God goes before us, our God walks with us, and our God comes behind us. He is the one doing the work. The invitation for you and for me is simply to say, yes, Lord, and take the step. And here's why I say that, and this is how we'll we'll land this whole thing today, is this. I guarantee you have non-believers in your life. I guarantee it. God did not vacuum your soul straight to heaven. He left you here. And if he did that, he did it on purpose. You have people in your life who don't know Christ. And I also know if you're anything like me, there are a bunch of those relationships that you look at them and you just go, there's just no way I can be the person who does that. There's just too, there's too much to get over. Like, it's just, I'm just not the best person in this scenario. Maybe it's a sibling or a parent or a child or a grandparent or a coworker or a friend or a neighbor or someone who's seen you probably not at your top. You know what I'm saying? And you're just going, you know, my ministry for this person is to pray that God would put someone else in their life to preach the gospel. Hey, beloved, God put someone in their life to preach the gospel. It's you. That's why you know enough to pray for them. But here's the amazing thing. This is the amazing thing. Beloved, God has already gone before you. God has already gone before you, and God is with you, and God will come behind you, and you don't have to do anything besides say yes and take a step. Guys, they could not have planned this scene. And if they did plan this scene, they would have been idiots. Here's what we'll do, Barnabas. 
will find an evil magician and I will condemn him in the name of the Lord and it will be so intense. They couldn't have planned that. They just said yes and took the step and yes and took the step and yes and took the step. And look what God did with that. Beloved, if God can do that, imagine what he can do in our midst. Imagine what he can do with your grandkids. Imagine what he can do with your siblings. Imagine what he can do with your coworkers. Imagine what he can do with your neighbors. Imagine what he can do in our community. We worship a God who has gone before us, who walks with us, and who will come behind us. He does the work. We just get to say yes and walk alongside him. I'm going to ask Chris to come up. We're going to sing a song to close. And here's what I want you guys to do. We're going to sing this song about how God is so faithful in his promises. You may have heard this song before. We haven't done it in this setting before. But I want to encourage you to let this song be sung over you. Reflect on the lyrics. Think about what's being said. And think about the invitation that God has given you. Think about what yes and take a step might look for you, look like for you. Reflect on this. Let this be sung over you and then we'll just go home because it's really good. Let me pray for us and we'll do this. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for going before us. Thank you for making a way for us. God, you are so faithful. You're so faithful. You do what you say, God. Your promise is as good as accomplished. May we be the sort of people who so trust you, who so see you for who you really are that it just makes sense to say yes and take the next step. We love you, Jesus. Amen.